Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. Happy Friday, and welcome to your favorite part of the Bill Press Pod, as we hear often, our weekly reporters' roundtable. A lot to dive into for today's panel, including today's historic vote to expel New York Congressman George Santos from Congress, which requires a two-thirds vote in the House. We'll soon see if Santos has enough friends left to stay. And we'll see how many Republicans follow Donald Trump's advice to repeal Obamacare. (laughs) Hey, they tried that once. Do they really want to go down that road again? Meanwhile, Nikki Haley picked up a big endorsement from the once all-powerful Koch brothers political machine. Is that enough for her to derail Trump's apparent lock on the nomination? And Americans are divided once again on another issue, this time on whether to remember Henry Kissinger as a statesman or as a war criminal. Well, we'll let our panel decide. Joining us today, Philip Bump, national columnist for The Washington Post, author of the How to Read This Chart newsletter, and author of the new book on the boomers, The Aftermath. Hello, Philip. Good morning, sir. Good to have you here. Welcome back. Also, welcome back to Leah Escaranam, a top D.C. elections analyst, most formerly with the Cook Political Report. Hello, Leah. Good morning. Hello. Okay. We're, We're doing great. Good to have you on board, too. And a big hello to Jason Dick, editor-in-chief of CQ Roll Call and host uh, of his own podcast. Hello, Jason. Good morning. Morning, Bill. Good morning, everybody. All right. So, Jason, let me start with you. How much longer are we going to be able to call George Santos Congressman Santos? <laughs> uh, at, at the recording of this podcast at 8.35 <laughs> Eastern Time, uh, Mr. Santos probably has uh, most likely about two and a half to three hours left as a member of Congress. Uh, now, I will say this. There are it, it could get a little dicey um, mm. with 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 the vote. I mean, the the math seems to be, you know, trending away from from Santos, uh, as, as you stated, takes a two thirds, uh, uh, you know, vote. But. You know, there are some absences. There are some Democratic absences. Uh, it, it, it looks like it could be a little closer, but probably will they, they will find a way to expel him. Uh, if not and on the first time, maybe the second, because there are two privileged resolutions to expel him. One uh, that's been filed by the Ethics Committee chairman, Mike Guest, uh, a Republican from uh, Mississippi. And then another one, not to be outdone, the Democrats have their own from Robert Garcia, a Democrat from California. So if, even if the first one fails, they get a second chance at it. Yeah. Well, one thing that surprised me is that Matt Gates, um, who I thought was uh, in supported throwing anybody else but himself out of Congress, uh, has been defending Santos, uh, making a point that he would be the first member of Congress 
expelled without having first been convicted of a crime. Here is Mr. Gates on the floor. I rise not to defend George Santos, whoever he is, but to defend the very precedent that my colleagues are willing to shatter. So, uh, George Santos, Leah, whoever he is, right? Uh, the, the last one expelled was Jim Trafficant, whom some of us fondly remember, remember, but only after he'd been convicted of 10 federal crimes. George Santos hasn't been, he's been charged, but hasn't been in court, hasn't defended himself, had a chance to. Uh, doesn't Matt Gates have a point, Leah? Well, so... Does Matt Gates have a point? That's that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> let's start with Matt Gates personally. So he's oh. widely expected to run for governor um, of Florida. He's obviously was a huge part of the uh, effort to oust McCarthy and generally finds himself in the spotlight in this kind of um, environment. So um, it's not surprising that he's he's taking a stand and has become a central a central defender of Santos. Um, but I mean, it is it is unprecedented. So was you know ousting a, a speaker, um, which we already did um, this year. Uh, and um, the the tricky part with Santos is usually members of Congress have. Uh, just decide on their own terms that they're going to resign, either because of public pressure or because of pressure from leadership, especially if they have strong relationships with the leaders of their party. Um, and Santos is just, he's abnormal in a lot of ways in terms of his relationship to Congress. But one of them is that he does not have that kind of, um, I don't think he has a kind of institutional loyalty. So, you know, if for yeah. him, it's a personal decision and, I, I, he's he's not going to resign, even though he's saying he's not running for re-election. And I think that's what makes this unprecedented. Right. So, uh, Philip, George Santos has been charged with 23 federal crimes. Donald Trump has been charged with 91. And <laughs> am I the only one to see some sort of lack of connection here between the rush to expel Santos and yet the rush to cuddle up to Donald Trump on the part of Republicans? Right. I mean, you're not. No, absolutely. I, you know, and this is obviously part of the reason that Matt Gates is doing what he's doing, right? Matt Gates is making this argument that, look, we cannot be confident. This isn't specifically what he said, but this is sort of the, thematically what he's saying. We cannot be confident that the federal prosecution against this Republican is something that should be treated as valid, right? And now, look, you know, you know to, to Leah's point, <laughs> Matt Gates has his own reasons for wanting people not to rush to judgment <laughs> on ethical issues, yeah? Uh, but, you, yes, it is absolutely the case that for Republicans to say, oh, look what George Santos did and then sort of, you know, mumbles to themselves and, and look the other way when people ask about Donald Trump. Yeah, it's, it's in Congress, uh, but it is easily reconciled if you simply <laughs> you recognize the obvious, which is that Donald Trump is powerful and he's going to be the nominee for the Republican presidential nomination next year. And George Santos is not. And George Santos is embarrassing to Republicans in a way that for Republican voters, Donald Trump isn't. Yeah. Well, so his name has been mentioned a couple of times already, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he has been back in the news this week, maybe not in the most positive way. Um, so, <laughs> uh, Liz Cheney, uh, leaks of her, um, some key aspects of, of her new book have came out, thanks to CNN's reporting. Uh, and Jason, here is uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell talking about one big um, takeaway from Cheney's book about 
Kevin McCarthy. He's not eating. What the hell, Kevin? They're really worried, McCarthy said. Trump's not eating, so they asked me to come see him. What? You went to Mar-a-Lago because Trump's not eating? Liz Cheney responded. He's really depressed, McCarthy said. That's why we're here. Trump's not eating, and this entire Congress has been Jim Jordan and MAGA Republicans feeding Trump. They're just feeding the beast with the insane hearings that they're holding all over the Capitol. So, <laughs> so Jason, Trump's not eating, so Kevin has to rush down to Mar-a-Lago. Well, uh, as as we as we learned uh, in during Trump's presidency, McCarthy was always there to unwrap the strawberry starburst uh, on Air Force One. Um, by the way, I, you know, kudos to Swalwell for the dramatic reading. Uh, you know, like if if if. If only all of Congress was like this, you know, <laughs> uh, these dramatic readings, maybe we could even do it with the ethics report from on Santos. Um, you know, th- I, I feel like, you know, McCarthy, you know, Mac- McCarthy this week, you know, sort of hinted at what has been expected for a while, which is that he may not uh, <laughs> run for reelection. He may not even serve out the rest of this term. And I think part of it is that he is increasingly an island. I mean, the, the, uh, the it seems as if while the Republican Party is not ready to move on from Donald Trump, they are certainly, at least in the House, ready to move on from Kevin McCarthy. He doesn't really have a lot you know, to, to do, so to speak. I mean, he's, he was never sort of some kind of policy wonk, you know, who could just go back and work on, you know, like revamping the tax code on the ways and means committee or something like that. Uh, he was always a a mover and a shaker and, you know, he's, he's now sort of a person without a a place, uh, necessarily and, you know, higher, higher salaries beckon perhaps. Do you? Oh, I was just going to ask you. Do you think he will hang in there, or uh, there are rumors that he may resign by the end of the year? Yeah, I can't see like w- w- under a lot of circumstances under which the, he would say like this is a really good idea for me to stick it out. Uh, I mean, he you know, he he doesn't seem to have that. I mean, he, you know, he's he's kind of lost a little bit of everybody. Um, he he doesn't have. Uh, you know, Trump, you know, Trump has no need for him anymore. Uh, and, and so, and neither does the rest of the house Republican conference. So it's, it's hard to say, see why he would stick around. Uh, but stranger things have happened as we've seen, you know, this year. Right. Uh, so Leah, not to spend too much time on Kevin McCarthy, but I can't resist, um, <laughs> a, a person that we don't always hear good one-liners from is the vice president of the United States, but she was asked by Kevin McCar- about Kevin McCarthy at a forum up in New York this week. Kevin McCarthy was here this morning mm-hmm. and he was, uh, in very stark terms, effectively said that he did not believe that President Biden Uh, was the same President Biden that he used to talk to. Went so far as to say that when they were having the debt negotiations, that he didn't even think he was negotiating with him. With all due respect, (laughs) when anyone who has had the experience that he has most recently had, I don't think he's a judge of negotiations. (laughs) Uh, Leo, she's got a point, right? (laughs) Where Kevin McCarthy is today. (laughs) Not such a great negotiator. No, it's so I think what Jason said about McCarthy kind of being his own island right now is is really smart. I think that's spot on. Um I mean he kind of he depended on Trump's popularity to carry him 
after January 6th, right? Like we saw on January 6th, he seemed very displeased with the president, um, turned around very quickly and um, defended uh, Donald Trump. Um, And it seems like from what we've seen in some reporting that he expected um, some sort of loyalty in return, Um, which I, I mean, at this point, I think people who expect loyalty from Trump. It, it's it, This is like a story we've seen so many times over the last, you know, seven years. Um, and, and it just, that's that's not how this works. Um, so I don't know. I just don't know who his, who his allies are. And I think he's probably has to, has to figure that out before he figures out, you know, what, what his next step is. Right. Also reported this week that uh, McCarthy, when Trump refused to bail him out and save him uh, in order to keep his speakership that he and Trump had a very angry phone call in which Kevin McCarthy reportedly told Kevin or told Donald Trump F you. But all right, enough about Kevin McCarthy. Hey, uh, Philip. So Eric Swalwell did mention some of these hearings that are not going so well for Republicans. One, they, they are, they seem determined to stay on the track of, and you've been writing a lot about this is to impeach Joe Biden, even though they're not sure yet why, for what, for what reason they would impeach him. Here is Chairman James Comer. I'll set you up with this. I've seen this all over Fox News every time I make a mistake of turning it on. Uh, and this is what Comer keeps talking about, why we need to impeach Joe Biden. Here he is. We've also revealed how Joe Biden received $40,000 in laundered China money in the form of a personal check from his sister-in-law. There you go. Philip, impeach him. What's going on? So I just I want to be very, very clear here that the the extent to which people, I think, have this broad understanding of the impeachment inquiry is just kind of a mess and, and contrived. I don't think people understand the extent to which that's true. It is the same arguments, the same nonsense that's been perpetuated over the course of basically the, the, the entire past year with no forward progress, with evidence constantly undermining evidence they claim they already have. There is literally nothing to this. And I, and I, I want to put a really fine point on that because it's important context for what James Comer just said. So James Comer and the House Oversight Committee put out subpoenas and they received financial documents from James Biden, who's Joe Biden's brother, and his wife, Sarah, having paid checks to Joe Biden, one for $200,000, one for $40,000. And so this argument that James Comer just made there, and I described it this week at The Washington Post as the most dishonest thing he has said over the course of a year of saying dishonest things. And the reason why is because those checks are very obviously loan repayments. From Joe Biden, loaning his brother money and getting paid back. The check on it, the check from 2018 says loan repayment on the check. So James Comer is like, oh, this is part of like a grand five year long scheme to like fool people into thinking this is a loan. We have documentation. We have I've seen personally documentation of a loan from Joe Biden to his brother. And then even this argument that this is laundered China money. There is like this three week period where a Chinese business partner of Hunter Biden and James Biden's pays money to an organization. It goes money in, into a uh, to a law firm. The money then goes into a consulting firm James Biden has. Then like two weeks later, his wife takes money, puts it in a personal account. And then after that, she pays this loan back, back to Joe Biden. So like even that part of it is dishonest or misleading based on what they have. I, and it's just, it's such a good encapsulation of what total absolute unmitigated trash this entire thing is and how eager James Comer is to fundraise off this stuff and get on Fox News to talk about it when there's absolutely nothing undergirding it. Whoa. Wow. I think you've made the case. Jason, 
What? Why would Mike Johnson go ahead with this or allow it to go forward? Because he saw what happened to Kevin McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in in the you know, it's sort of the the simplest explanation is usually the best uh, in this. Mike Johnson, you know, for for all his you know sort of honeymoon period, I mean, is 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 treading the same tenuous you know, kind of political situation that McCarthy was, he can't really piss anybody off uh, like too, too badly. And right now this is what, you know, the, the base wants, this is what the Jim Jordans and, and the Gateses and, and everybody want, they want regardless of whether, you know, there is any kind of evidence they, they want to gin up, you know, sort of this mass hysteria uh, ab- about uh, the impeachment, whether there's anything to it or not. And, you know, it will likely go nowhere or it could get some sort of vote. And like the the point of it for a lot of the Republicans who want this to happen is not that there is evidence, not that there's wrongdoing, but just simply that they get to bloody up Biden uh, and they they get to do that because it's a lot easier to do that than to do things like policy. (laughs) There is no policy making going on uh, in, in this Congress, at least in the House. Yeah. Uh, And the other um, issue, of course, related uh, are the Hunter Biden uh, is the Hunter Biden investigation. Uh, Biden's uh, Hunter's attorneys this week um, agreed that he would testify, but only in an open hearing, which Comer immediately dismissed. Uh, And then he went on Newsmax, Leah, and talked about here's the problem, he says, withholding these hearings, uh, I, I think giving some indication of why maybe he's not the best chairman to, <laughs> for this committee. But at any rate, Comer saying, uh, here's what's wrong with congressional hearings. Uh, but, you know, as these congressional investigation, these hearings go, uh, you've got uh, 20 members on each side that have five minutes each. We have tens of thousands of pages of documents where we need to sit down and ask specific substantive questions without filibustering, without interruptions, without going five minutes back and forth with with Jamie Raskins and Dan Goldman and and, uh, little Moskowitz jumping up and down, uh, uh, filing motions and trying to disrupt the committee hearings. So, Leah, (laughs) we can't have anybody else talking at these hearings, right? No, I mean, I think what gets lost in this conversation is how much of this is a Trump phenomenon. Like the hmm. th- this is as much as, you know, yes, Mike Johnson needs um might need to do this in order to keep his position as speaker, though, you know, even that's I think a little debatable just because I don't know if Republicans want to go through the same thing that they just did with with um, Speaker McCarthy. Um, but when it comes to popular opinion about Biden, it's been really hard to get voters to kind of dislike him. Now, that's not saying that they don't dislike his job performance. They do. That job performance is sinking. But in terms of his actual favorability, it's been it's it's hard for any kind of attacks to kind of puncture his image just because he's been around for so long. Um, you know, if, if Republicans really want to go after Joe Biden, what they want to go, um, what they, they want to focus on, and this is what Ron DeSantis focused on a bit last night, which we can talk about later, um, is Biden's age, right? Like that seems to be the most effective attack. And so I kind of, it's it's hard to see why they're going through all of this other than 
the idea that Donald Trump personally does want this to be done partially for his own for his own reasons, for his own personal reasons. Um, and I think it's just a an important mm-hmm. to point out given what's going on with um Santos and like this in McCarthy, like how much of this it it looks like it's the Republican Party at large. It is the Republican Party at large, but it's also very much Trump. Donald Trump calling the shots. Okay. Oh, so much to talk about. We're going to have to take a quick break and get back into uh, some of the other news of the day, particularly regarding uh, the presidential race for 2024. Uh, so let's take a quick break here, and then we'll be back with today's panel. Philip Bump from the Washington Post, Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call, and Leah Askaranem, elections analyst here in Washington, D.C. And friends, you've heard me uh, mention this before, and I want to do so once again. It is holiday time. It is shopping time. And I encourage you uh, to check out uh, the website carolpressscarves.com. You can't do better in finding the perfect gift for yourself or for someone you love than a hand-woven uh, beautiful handwoven scarf by my wife, Carol Press. They come in rayon chenille or bamboo, all kinds of beautiful colors and designs to choose from. Now's the time Carol's running over to the post office every day, uh, getting scarves out to people in time for the holidays. So check our website today. Get your order in at carolpressscarves.com. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with today's uh, roundtable here, looking at the news of the week with Jason Dick, editor-in-chief of CQ Roll Call, Leah Askarnam, a top elections analyst, uh, just uh, left the Cook Political Report onto her next journey uh, in uh, political reporting, and Philip Bump, national columnist for the Washington Post, well, the um, 2024 campaign got a little bump this week, Philip, when Donald Trump said, here's a good idea, a new idea, let's repeal Obamacare. Uh, this is something that Donald Trump, of course, talked about before, Philip. Here is a little quick clip from 
I think back in 2018. You see the plans we have coming out literally over the next four weeks. We have great health care plans coming out. Yep, repeal and replace. We've got a new plan coming out in just two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. <laughs> How's this right. play, Philip? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look, one of the longest running jokes of the Donald Trump administration was that he always would be to promise these things that were going to happen and then they never happened. You know, healthcare being absolutely at the, at the forefront of that grouping. Um, Donald Trump has always also been tied up by the fact that he sees things and then jumps on them and says stuff and then it becomes this new cycle and then he has to sort of either figure out how it's going to be incorporated into his politics or he has to just sort of ignore it and walk away from it. Um, also, it is the case that Donald Trump's view of what is important in American politics was shaped uh, by his you know, long-running gig on Fox News prior to 2015, by his reading Breitbart in 2014, 2015. And so he, he carries <laughs> with him these ideas of what's important in politics that are by now, you know, eight years old. And so, you know, this was during the Obama administration. We saw the House Republicans repeatedly you know, dozens yeah. of times yeah. trying to repeal yeah. Obamacare. And then, of course, when he got to be president, they actually had to do it and, you know, came up short in part because John McCain did the same as thumbs down. And there, there has been some rumbling on the right. We're like, OK, well, now John McCain's gone. We have, you know, a better Senate, better House. You know, maybe we can actually do this thing. But there's just no this is not something that's on anyone's radar until Donald Trump stumbled across something apparently in the Wall Street Journal and decided <laughs> that he, oh, he's like, oh, that's right. Obamacare. Everyone hates that. Right. Let's go against Obamacare. And it's just like that's that's how he approaches all this stuff. It's not thoughtful in the least. And he has no alternative beyond, oh, it's going to be perfect, which he's been saying now for what is it, 2023, 20, seven years. And it's, you know, I think it, it's safe to say that he has no plan that is a perfect solution to healthcare. Uh, right. And uh, <laughs> the repeal and replace. It's funny how um, most Republicans have just walked away from that and we're not happy to see Donald Trump bring it uh, all back on the presidential front. Also, Leah, Nikki uh, Haley got a big endorsement this week from the Koch political operation. Reporters are calling this now Haley's comment. She's got momentum. She's on her way. Uh, really? Is this going to make any difference? Get her any closer to knocking off Donald Trump? So I think two things can be true. Um, she has <laughs> momentum. Um, and it's very hard to imagine anyone other than Donald Trump winning the nomination. That said, I, I he something could happen, you know, like there's, there are a lot of moving pieces, um, mostly the charges that you mentioned um, that Donald Trump is facing uh, that could change the landscape in the next few months. But just in terms of the numbers, in terms of polling, um, a surge to, you know, 16, 20% um, is still far behind where Trump is. And even as Nikki Haley is getting endorsements um, from um, from some major donors, like you mentioned, um, Ron DeSantis is still getting endorsements from some pretty heavy hitters in Iowa. Um, and so we're not seeing yet a kind of massive movement like what we saw, you know, in 2020, later in the cycle, um, around Biden. We're not seeing a kind of sea change where everyone all of a sudden is, like, all of the key Republican stakeholders are moving to Nikki Haley. We're seeing a few key players, but it's now December of 2023. Um, 
you know, the the the, the primary begins very soon, and <laughs> it seems like it, it's it, it's probably been too late for a while now. But if it's not too late, it's it's. I mean, one or two endorsements isn't enough to, to yeah. put Haley over the edge. Uh, so, uh, Jason, there's a lot of talk. We hear it a lot um, <clears throat> from Republicans and Democrats. If only it weren't going to be Donald Trump and Joe Biden. If only we had two different people running for president, two different nominees. Well, we got a glimpse of what that might look like last night in this Fox News manufactured debate between Governor Gavin Newsom of California and Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Um, I thought the debate was unwatchable. I don't know whether any of you took any time to look at any of them. I, looked, I, I, could, I lasted a half an hour and then just had to turn it off. But Gavin Newsom, I thought, started out, uh, Jason, with the only memorable line of the evening in his opening remarks. There are profound differences tonight, and I look forward to engaging, but there's one thing in closing that we have in common is neither of us will be the nominee for our party in 2024. Ouch. <laughs> it, re- it really, it's, it. I mean, you could have just turned it off at that point. <laughs> like, I mean, that was going to be the takeaway as, as we discussed a little bit, you know, off mic before we started the podcast. Um, and, and also, I mean, not, not to, not to go too deep into the weeds, but not only is Ron DeSantis not going to be the nominee, he's not even going to be the vice presidential nominee because Donald Trump also <laughs> is from Florida and you can't have two nominees. I mean, DeSantis would have to move to Alabama or something, kind of like Cheney moved from Texas to Wyoming. Which he would. Which, which he yeah, would. He probably would. Yes. So, you know, I mean, I, I mean, Tommy Tuberville did it, you know, to run for Senate. So uh, moving from Florida to Alabama. Um, yeah, it, it's just it really I, I mean, I don't know what the audience was necessarily for this um especially you know on a night where there was football too um i mean i i just don't get what i mean i i think i get like desantis wanted to be part of the conversation he's desperate to try to break through to reach more people uh newsom you know like he he gets to be a surrogate he gets to sort of you know thrust and parry and and just sort of you know he didn't really have to win because he's not running for anything right now and you know we might have gotten a glimpse of what it's going to be like in 2028 who knows? Um, but it, it seems that the more the more exposure that DeSantis gets in situations like this, the more kind of desperate he looks. I mean, I think I got like 75 emails from the DeSantis campaign <laughs> every, every time he had a line, um, you know, and and it just it it made me um, angry <laughs> to have to kill all those emails. <laughs> uh, Philip, why did either one of them want to do this? Um, yeah, I, I just want to echo that point about the emails. It was it was, oh, oh, it was pretty yeah. over the top. Um, I think that the reasons, I think that there are three parties here, right? So there was Ron DeSantis, Gavin Newsom, and Sean Handy. Sean Handy wanted to do this because Sean Handy, I think, overestimates his own intelligence to a large extent, but also because he wanted to be this platform where the the right could accomplish this thing that they've been trying to do for a long time, which is where they have a debate where once and for all, they all get to 
beat up on a liberal and show how the liberals full of garbage, right? And they all, mm. they've all sort of convinced themselves this is something that's trivial to do if only the liberals would agree to the debate. And we'll hear this all the time in the public conversation. Handy, I think, was trying to platform that. DeSantis was doing it. He agreed to this a long time ago, back when it seemed like he might have more of a shot at this. Um, you know, and Fox News right. tried to hype this as, you know, oh, Newsom's going to be the nominee next year, which, of course, is ridiculous. Uh, I think DeSantis thought, you know, this is a chance for me to seem presidential, to sort of step up and have this sort of inter-party uh, debate before next year. And he agreed to it at a time when it seemed like he may actually be participating in inter-party debates next year, which he's not. Uh, so I think that's why DeSantis <laughs> did it. Newsom did it because Newsom, apparently, according to news reports, is actually an avid Fox News consumer. And he, like a lot of people on the left when they watch Fox News, not to name anyone here, uh, named Bill, who might <laughs> be in the same camp. Uh, but when he watches Fox News, he gets his palpable sense of frustration at what he's seeing. And I think he thinks that he can go on Fox News and engage in this debate and show Fox News viewers something they don't usually see. That may be true, but of course, this whole thing was stacked very much against Gavin Newsom. He's on Fox News. Sean Handy's the moderator, for God's sake, right? So that that is an uphill climb by itself. Uh, but I think that's why Newsom did it. He wanted to go on and actually confront the the rhetoric that that Fox News viewers hear all the time directly to those viewers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Leo, just a little bit that I watched, it was pretty clear, and I've seen some reports this morning who, who makes the same point. It was not Newsom versus DeSantis. It was Newsom versus DeSantis and Sean Hannity, right? Oh, <laughs> and, I mean, and yeah. Fox News. No, I mean, it, I what I wanted to learn from it was how Gavin Newsom would handle himself when facing both Ron DeSantis and Sean Hannity. Um, because I can see Newsom being you know, a presidential contender in the future and has to defend a record in California that Republicans love to talk about. So I was just interested to see, you know, how he would navigate um navigate that whole process, that whole debate. And um I didn't need to watch the whole thing to get that. Um I think that it probably showed us a, a a different Republican Party scenario without Trump potentially, but I don't know if it would actually be DeSantis and 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 Newsom or Haley and Newsom. Um, but no, I mean it was. I think it was like an interesting exercise for political nerds to watch. <laughs> a sense of, but I candidly was flipping between that and the Golden Bachelor, and it was, um, you know, I, I, at the end, I chose the Golden Bachelor. Uh, I think it was also pretty clear that Ron DeSantis, uh, his advisors gave him just one piece of advice, which was smile, 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 yeah. smile. Yeah. And, and he smiled no matter what Gavin Newsom said, and I think we learned he, he that conducted a smile like exercise. <laughs> <laughs> smile adjacent. So. Uh, yeah, and I don't think you really can smile. It doesn't have a good smile. All right, so um, uh, I ask the uh, indulgence of our panelists. Normally, we stick to domestic politics, uh, and we have today. But but there's some breaking news this morning. Um, I think it's important that we at least touch on, which is. Uh, the situation in the Middle East, the war between Israel and Hamas has now resumed. Um, Israel is accusing Hamas of violating, breaking the last ceasefire. So no more hostages re for released for now. Um, fighting has resumed. And the New York Times reports a devastating report that the Israeli government was actually given and shown a plan, a very detailed plan for exactly what Hamas pulled off on October 7. 
They were given this plan a year ago and dismissed it as just uh, some dream on the part of Hamas that they would never be able to pull off. And in fact, they did write to the letter of this plan. So where does that, and then of course there is the the domestic uh, impact or fallout of the United States and particularly Joe Biden's efforts to um, support Israel, but also uh, urge more restraint and try to extend the ceasefire even beyond the seven days that he was able to do so. So there's a political fallout here at home. Um, I want to, so I ask each of our panelists to give us their take on what we as Americans, what this all means for us as Americans here at home. Philip, you want to start us off? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is an incredibly complicated thing with very, very high passions, right? So, so one wants to be careful in in talking about it. I, I, I one of the things that struck me about this and about this broader conversation is the extent to which there have been lots of anecdotal reports about people who are Arab American or Muslim American who have reacted very strongly against how Joe Biden has approached this, and and you know, again, anecdotally uh, said that they are not going to support Joe Biden next year uh, in his presidential bid. Uh, and so this week, I actually looked at that. I looked at the extent to which uh, Muslim Americans and Arab Americans in particular make up uh, voting constituencies around the country, uh, finding that in each of the five states that Joe Biden flipped uh, to the Democrats in 2020, there are more. There's a larger Arab American population than the margin of victory. Uh, which does, of course, not mean that they can be the margin of difference in having Joe Biden lose, uh, since there are all sorts of qualifiers, citizenship, age, you know, v- uh, voting registration. Uh, but it does show that if this is a constituency that is adamantly opposed to Joe Biden, that is problematic uh, in these swing states. Uh, but I think more broadly, and you know, I, I'll let others speak to this, but more broadly, it is a sign once again that Joe Biden has a constituency of voters that he needs to rely upon who are apathetic. And, you know, not universally, but a lot of them are sort of came into 2020 supporting Joe Biden largely because they didn't like Donald Trump with some hope for Joe Biden. And now there's a lot more people who are like, eh, about Joe Biden as well, which may not mean they vote for Donald Trump, but may mean they don't vote at all. And I think this this question of how Arab Americans vote in relation to the, the war in Gaza is sort of a microcosm of this broader threat that Joe Biden faces, where his base from 2020 is, is more indifferent toward him than than he would want. Uh, and Leah, he's, uh, the president's also facing some blowback from um, younger voters as yeah. well. Yeah. So this week, I actually I spoke to um, a bunch of pollsters about um, about uh, Biden's approval rating hitting a new low with with voters of color. Um, so similar to what Philip was um, had just mentioned. Um, and as I'm talking, as I was talking to these pollsters, um, you know, yes, there's the economy. There's a whole bunch of there are a whole bunch of reasons for this uh, for Biden's dip in his approval rating, and it's it's been dipping for, you know, a few months now, but um, something that pollsters repeatedly returned to was um, Biden's handling of um, Israel and that being particularly um, resonant with with young voters and with young voters of color. Um, and so I think, again, like the, the key word there is apathy. You know, it's, it's less a concern about um, young voters, voters of color, um, turning to Trump and more so about them either voting third party or not voting at all, which would likely play into Trump's hands. 
Yeah. Uh, Jason, so what's your take? How does this play at home and uh, particularly for the leadership position of Joe Biden? It it certainly makes it more difficult. And, you know, the thing that struck me about the report, you know, from the New York Times about the Israelis getting uh, a copy, you know, if if you will, of, of fairly detailed plans that turned out to be remarkably similar uh, on October 7th is that it it pierces, I mean, part of Biden's, you know, uh, you know, part of part of Biden's like support for Israel is this is a democracy. This is these are our allies. Uh, they they do the right thing in a hostile region, and we have to support them, uh, which is you know a very traditional political you know democratic you know establishment mm-hmm. um, position. And when you see something like this, it's like, but they're not even competent. I mean, like I mean, if they if mm. they were literally handed a, a, a you know a document that said secret plans to kill people, and they didn't do anything about it, and it sort of punctures this idea that this is a you know that that people like Benjamin Netanyahu who will have you know who yeah. will have to answer for this much like you know Golda Meir had to answer for the failures of intelligence that led up to the the Yom Kippur war 50 years ago uh you know that that this this just makes it more difficult for Biden to say these are our allies we have to support them especially when they just screw it up this badly yeah, I remember initially on October seven, the the the, the uh, comment or the commentary was about how could the Israeli intelligence have missed this? Well, it turns out <laughs> they didn't miss it; they dismissed it. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, it made me think of the you know the the fallout from nine eleven where we had these reports of you know intelligence briefings saying Bin Laden determined to strike United States, um, and I mean that you know that didn't have as much electoral effect against Bush uh, and and the Republicans, but it it certainly you know again it 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 pierces any sort of like veneer of competence you know and and part of that is what Biden you know depends on. I mean he wants to show like we want to support our allies. Yeah, and that was far, by the way, uh, the uh, 9-11 warning was far from being a detailed battle plan, which is right. what the Israelis had in, in this case. And with that, a big thank you to today's panel for looking at the news of the week and beyond here on the Bill Press Pod. We can't let you go, however. There's always one story that uh, each of us notices, maybe more than one, stops us in our tracks uh, and makes us laugh or cry or <laughs> or just <laughs> swear or whatever. Uh, our, we call it our favorite story of the week. Uh, let's see. Leah, could you uh, start off? Sure. Um, I'm going to start off nerdy. Uh, okay. Yeah, there's an article um, by Michelle Price of the AP um, who noted that you know the Republican National Committee just um, released their rules for next year's um, primaries and how to oh, assign delegates. Um, and she noted that the uh, th- this big book of rules does not address what happens if Donald Trump is convicted. Um, and so <laughs> I, as someone watching delegates in 2024, it's something to keep an eye out for as much as we're talking now about how um, you know, Trump does seem to, you know, he has the lead, like the complicating factor for him could be this conviction. And uh, I think her article uh, emphasizes how we're going into un- uncharted territory here, if that does happen. Talk about uncharted territory, indeed, but maybe something they ought to be uh, <clears throat> coming up with plan B for. <laughs> uh, Philip, what caught your attention this week? 
Yeah, so I mean, this is obviously not a story that was missed, the, the death of Henry Kissinger. Uh, but I think there's an oh. aspect of it that was really fascinating to me, which is that Henry Kissinger in later life, you know, beyond those of us who work in politics or who have been in D.C. for decades or, or whatever, Henry Kissinger was known broadly to the American public through this meme of the fact that he was surviving so long, right? And it's this yeah. fascinating <laughs> thing where his 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 legacy, which obviously is modeled to put to put it mildly, his legacy only retained awareness in public consciousness because he became the symbol of look at this guy who did these bad things and persists in existence. And <laughs> younger generations were very aware of Henry Kissinger through this lens of this guy is still around and here are the things he did. And it's this really fascinating way in which the internet can take something, which is very old, right? You know, the, 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 the Henry Kissinger's actions as secretary of state obviously predate the internet by decades. Right. And yet the internet can retain awareness of it and, and populate awareness of what Henry Kissinger did simply by virtue of making him an interesting thing to talk about through this lens of longevity. And it's just sort of this fascinating thing to consider that had the internet not existed or had Henry Kissinger not become sort of the, 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 uh, the, the totem for people who do bad things and live along lives anyway, long, yeah. you know, you know, lives of, 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 of distinguishment in the eyes of their peers, had that not happened, what would the, what would the, what would uh, the remembrances of him look like? Would they have yeah. been as harsh as they end up being? And I just think it's sort of a fascinating lens to how the internet works. The good and the bad of Henry Kissinger, right? Lived on. Uh, by the way, my, I've been telling people lately, just go back and read Christopher Hitchens' book, The Trial of Henry Kissinger. I think uh, that kind of says it all for me. Uh, And Jason Dick, um, your favorite story of the week? Yes, Ed, before I get to that, I just have to note also that lost in this, I think, is is Kissinger's nude uh, portfolio in Cosmopolitan oh. in the 70s. Uh, <laughs> oh. d- just didn't get a lot of attention among all the war crimes <laughs> uh, and debate there. Oh, God, I forgot uh, all about that. Yes. Uh, thank you, Jason. Uh, yeah, yeah, stay with that image, everybody. <laughs> happy, happy Friday. Uh, my favorite story of the week is not about the movies uh, it, for, for once. Uh, it is from the New York Times Magazine over the weekend. And everybody knows Flo, but who knows who Stephanie Courtney is? This is the actress who plays Flo in the progressive commercials. She has been doing this since... 2008 uh she, she's she's a uh a, an actress she still performs with the groundlings in los angeles uh this story <laughs> uh, is, in the new york times magazine by katie weaver is great because it gets into how she got uh, the 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 role how she is more recognized she is so recognizable that the only people who can really compete with her are 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 like cartoon characters, and then people like Kissinger, of course. Uh, and and I mean, she is one among the most recognizable people in pop culture. And she makes, I mean, again, it's probably nobody's dream to be a, a an ad <laughs> in an ad for fifteen years. But the estimates of how much she money she makes are, oh, are yeah. somewhere around ten million dollars a year. So Whoa. she is a well compensated actress. She can kind of do what she wants, which is probably why she's still with the Groundlings, you know, in her in her in her time. Mm-hmm. And it's just a great like interesting very meta story uh yeah i'd make an ad for that much money every year (laughs) Uh, so i have to tell you my favorite story of the week i went to the white house correspondence association uh holiday party uh on tuesday evening 
And Kelly O'Donnell, the president uh, of the White House Correspondents Association, uh, startled the crowd at the beginning by announcing there was breaking news. Everybody sort of froze. And she announced that the breaking news was that the White House Christmas tree had just fallen over, <laughs> which uh, I found to be, so I just made me feel sorry for Joe Biden. I mean, you know, everybody saw this right away, of course, as a metaphor for poor Joe Biden. You know, he 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 pressures Israel to have a ceasefire, and then people bitch because the ceasefire is not permanent. It's just a couple of days. They get hostages home, and people bitch about the fact that he didn't get all the hostages home in one day, just a couple of dozen of them each day. Uh, the price of gas is lower than it's been in like the last five years. Nobody gives Joe Biden any credit. And then the damn Christmas tree falls over. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, uh, they got it back up and they had a big lighting ceremony last night. So all ends well. But there's a, there a little uncertainty there for a while about whether we would have a White House Christmas tree or not at all. So that, with that, we say, again, a great big thank you to today's panel. Philip Bump from the Washington Post, Leah Skaranam, uh, top D.C. elections analyst, and Jason Dick, editor-in-chief of CQ Roll Call. Thank you, panelists, and thank to all of you, all of our good friends, for joining us today for today's roundtable. We'll be back on Tuesday with a very special uh, next edition of the Bill Press Pod, talking to Heather Cox Richardson, history professor at Boston College, who's the author of the new book called Democracy Awakening. That is the one book that Joe Biden bought when he went out to a bookstore on Friday up in Nantucket. So if it's good enough for the president of the United States, it's good enough for all of us. It's a wonderful book. And we'll be talking with Heather Cox Richardson about the threats to our democracy on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Tuesday. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.